Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing reading Wretched of the Earth and we're moving on to a new chapter, Colonial War and Mental Disorders. There are some content warnings for this episode. In general, this chapter is going to be about mental health, the effects of war, and we'll be discussing specific personal cases of individual people's mental illness, how it manifested, causes, or at least theoretically causes. Broadly speaking, there's content warning for mental health being depicted, torture, abuse, suicide, and the violence and violent acts of war that can trigger some traumas like this. There are some specific to this episode too. If you look in the description of this episode, there are timestamps indicating when different cases start. Uh, This week from series A, case 1 has a content warning for sexual assault that comes up throughout that whole section. And in case 2, there's a general content warning for violence and violent impulses. Case 4 has torture. Case 5 has child abuse, spouse abuse, torture. I'll continue trying to give quite specific content warnings for these cases as best I can manage, but know that a lot of this chapter is going to be quite heavy and upsetting material. With that, let's start the chapter. Colonial War and Mental Disorders But the war goes on and we will have to bind up for years to come the many, sometimes ineffaceable, wounds that the colonialist onslaught has inflicted on our people. That imperialism which today is fighting against the true liberation of mankind leaves in its wake here and there tinctures of decay, which we must search out and mercilessly expel from our land and our spirits. We shall deal here with the problem of mental disorders, which arise from the war of national liberation, which the Algerian people are carrying on. Perhaps these notes on psychiatry will be found ill-timed and singularly out of place in such a book, but we can do nothing about that. We cannot be held responsible that in this war, psychiatric phenomena entailing disorders affecting behaviour and thought have taken on importance where those who carry out the pacification are concerned, or that these same disorders are notable among the pacified population. The truth is that colonialism in its essence was already taking on the aspect of a fertile purveyor for psychiatric hospitals. We have, since 1954, in various scientific works, drawn the attention of both French and international psychiatrists to the difficulties that arise when seeking to cure a native properly. That is to say, when seeking to make him thoroughly a part of a social background of the colonial type. Because it is a systematic negation of the other person and a furious determination to deny the other person all attributes of humanity, colonialism forces the people it dominates to ask themselves the question constantly. In reality, who am I? The defensive attitudes created by this violent bringing together of the colonized man and the colonial system form themselves into a structure which then reveals the colonized personality. This sensitivity is easily understood if we simply study and are alive to the number and depth of the injuries inflicted upon a native during a single day spent amidst the colonial regime. It must in any case be remembered that a colonized people is not only simply a dominated people. 
Under the German occupation, the French remained men. Under the French occupation, the Germans remained men. In Algeria, there is not simply the domination, but the decision to the letter not to occupy anything more than the sum total of the land. The Algerians, the veiled women, the palm trees, and the camels make up the landscape, the natural background to the human presence of the French. Hostile nature, obstinate and fundamentally rebellious, is in fact represented in the colonies by the bush, by mosquitoes, natives, and fever, and colonization is a success when all this indocile nature has finally been tamed. Railways across the bush, the draining of swamps, and a native population which is non-existent politically and economically are in fact one and the same thing. In the period of colonization, when it is not contested by armed resistance, when the sum total of harmful, nervous stimuli overstep a certain threshold, the defensive attitudes of the natives give way, and they then find themselves crowding the mental hospitals. There is thus, during this calm period of successful colonization, a regular and important mental pathology, which is the direct product of oppression. Today, the War of National Liberation, which has been carried on by the Algerian people for the last seven years, has become a favorable breeding ground for mental disorders. Because so far as the Algerians are concerned, it is a total war. We shall mention here some Algerian cases which have been attended by us, and who seem to us to be particularly eloquent. We need hardly say that we are not concerned with producing a scientific work. We avoid all arguments over semiology, nosology, or therapeutics. Nosology. The few technical terms used serve merely as references. We must, however, insist on two points. Firstly, as a general rule, clinical psychiatry classifies the different disturbances shown by our patients under the heading reactionary psychoses. In doing this, prominence is given to the event which has given rise to the disorder, although in some cases mention is made of the previous history of the case, the psychological, affective, and biological condition of the patient, and of the type of background from whence he comes. It seems to us that in the cases here chosen, the events giving rise to the disorder are chiefly the bloodthirsty and pitiless atmosphere, the generalization of inhuman practices, and the firm impression that people have of being caught up in a veritable apocalypse. Footnote 1. Case number 2 of series A is a typical reactionary psychosis, but case numbers 1, 2, 4, and 5 of series B give evidence of a much more widely spread causality, although we cannot really speak of one particular event giving rise to the disorders. These are reactionary psychoses, if we want to use a ready-made label, but here we must give particular priority to the war, a war which in whole and in part is a colonial war. After the two great world wars, there is no lack of publications on the mental pathology of soldiers taking part in action and civilians who are victims of evacuations and bombardments. The hitherto unemphasized characteristics of certain psychiatric descriptions here given confirm, if confirmation were necessary, that this colonial war is singular even in the pathology that it gives rise to. Another idea which is strongly held needs, in our opinion, to be re-examined. 
This is the notion of the relative harmlessness of these reactional disorders. It is true that others have described, but always as exceptional cases, certain secondary psychoses. That's to say, cases where the whole of the personality is disrupted definitively. It seems to us, here, the rule is rather the frequent malignancy of these pathological processes. These are disorders which persist for months on end, making a mass attack against the ego, and practically always leaving as their sequel a weakness which is almost visible to the naked eye. According to all available evidence, the future of such patients is mortgaged. An example will best illustrate our point of view. In one of the African countries which have been independent for several years, we had occasion to receive a visit from a patriot who had been in the resistance. This man in his 30s came to ask us for advice and help, for around a certain date each year he suffered from prolonged insomnia, accompanied by anxiety and suicidal obsessions. The critical date was that when, on instructions from his organization, he had placed a bomb somewhere. Ten people had been killed as a result. Footnote 2 This militant, who had never, for a single moment, thought of repudiating his past action, realized very clearly the manner in which he himself had to pay the price of national independence. It is borderline cases such as his which raise the question of responsibility within the revolutionary framework. The observations noted here cover the period running from 1954 to 1959. Certain patients were examined in Algeria, either in hospital centers or as private patients. The others were cared for by the health divisions of the Army of National Liberation. Series A. Five cases are cited here. There are cases of Algerians or Europeans who had very clear symptoms of mental disorders of the reactionary type. Case number one. Impotence in an Algerian following the rape of his wife. B is a man 26 years old. He came to see us on the advice of the health service of the FLN for treatment of insomnia and persistent headaches. A former taxi driver, he had worked in the nationalist parties since he was 18. Since 1955, he had been a member of a branch of the FLN. He had several times used his taxi for the transport of political pamphlets and also political personnel. When the repression increased in ferocity, the FLN decided to bring the war into the urban centres. B thus came to have the task of driving commandos to the vicinity of attacking points, and quite often waited for them at those points to bring them back. One day, however, in the middle of the European part of the town, after fairly considerable fighting, a very large number of arrests forced him to abandon his taxi, and the commando unit broke up and scattered. B, who managed to escape through the enemy lines, took refuge at a friend's house. Some days later, without having been able to get back to his home, on the orders of his superiors, he joined the nearest band of McKee. For several months he was without news of his wife and his little girl of a year and eight months. On the other hand, he learned that the police spent several weeks on end searching the town. After two years spent in the McKee, he received a message from his wife, in which she asked him to forget her, for she had been dishonoured, and he ought not to think of taking up their life together again. He was extremely anxious, and asked his commander's leave to go home secretly. This was refused him, but on the other hand, measures were taken for a member of the FLN to make contact with B's wife and parents. 
Two days later, a detailed report reached the commander of B's unit. His abandoned taxi had been discovered with two machine gun magazines in it. Immediately afterward, French soldiers, accompanied by policemen, went to his house. Finding he was absent, they took his wife away and kept her for over a week. She was questioned about the company her husband kept and beaten fairly brutally for two days. But the third day, a French soldier, she was not able to say whether he was an officer, made the others leave the room and then raped her. Sometime later, a second soldier, this time with others present, raped her, saying to her, If ever you want to see your filthy husband again, don't forget to tell him what we did to you. She remained another week without undergoing any fresh questioning. After this, she was escorted back to her dwelling. When she told her story to her mother, the latter persuaded her to tell B everything. Thus, as soon as contact was re-established with her husband, she confessed her dishonor to him. Once the first shock had passed, and since moreover every minute of his time was filled by activity, B was able to overcome his feelings. For several months, he had heard many stories of Algerian women who had been raped or tortured, and he had occasion to see the husbands of these violated women. Thus his personal misfortunes and his dignity as an injured husband remained in the background. In 1958, he was entrusted with a mission abroad. When it was time to rejoin his unit, certain fits of absence of mind and sleeplessness made his comrades and superiors anxious about him. His departure was postponed, and it was decided he should have a medical examination. This was when we saw him. He seemed at once easy to get to know. A mobile face, perhaps a bit too mobile. Smiles slightly exaggerated. Surface well-being. I'm really very well, very well indeed. I'm feeling better now. Give me a tonic or two, a few vitamins, and I'll build myself up a bit. A basic anxiety came up to break the surface. He was at once sent to the hospital. From the second day on, the screen of optimism melted away, and what we saw in front of us was a thoughtful, depressed man, suffering from loss of appetite, who kept to his bed. He avoided political discussion and showed a marked lack of interest in everything to do with the national struggle. He avoided listening to any news which had a bearing on the War of Liberation. Any approach to his difficulties was extremely long, but at the end of several days, we were able to reconstruct his story. During his stay abroad, he tried to carry through a sexual affair which was unsuccessful. Thinking that this was due to fatigue, a normal result of forced marches and periods of undernourishment, he again tried two weeks later. Fresh failure. Talked about it to a friend who advised him to try vitamin B12. Took this in the form of pills. Another attempt, another failure. Moreover, a few seconds before the act, he had an irresistible impulse to tear up a photo of his little girl. Such a symbolic liaison might have caused us to think that unconscious impulsions of an incestuous nature were present. However, several interviews and a dream in which the patient saw the rapid rotting away of a little cat, accompanied by unbearable evil smells, led us to take quite another course. That girl, he said to us one day, speaking of his little daughter, has something rotten about her. From this period on, his insomnia became extremely marked, and in spite of fairly large doses of neuroleptics, a state of anxiety excitation was remarked, which the service found rather worrying. 
Then he spoke to us for the first time about his wife, laughing and saying to us, She's tasted the French. It was at that moment that we reconstructed the whole story. The weaving of events to form a pattern was made explicit. He told us that before every sexual attempt, he thought of his wife. All his confidences appeared to us to be of fundamental interest. I married this girl although I loved my cousin but my cousin's parents had arranged a match for their daughter with somebody else, so I accepted the first wife my parents found for me. She was nice, but I didn't love her. I used to always say to myself, You're young yet. Wait a bit, and when you find the right girl, you'll get a divorce and you'll make a happy marriage. So you see, I wasn't very attached to my wife, and with the troubles, I got further apart than ever. In the end, I used to come and eat my meals and sleep almost without speaking to her. In the McKee... When I heard that she'd been raped by the French, I first of all felt angry with the swine. Then I said, Oh well, there's not much harm done. She wasn't killed, she can start her life over again. And then a few weeks later, I came to realize that they'd raped her because they were looking for me. In fact, it was to punish her for keeping silence that she'd been violated. She could have very well told them at least the name of one of the chaps in the movement, and from that they could have searched out the whole network destroyed it, and maybe even arrested me. That wasn't a simple rape, for want of something better to do, or for sadistic reasons like those I've had occasion to see in the villages. It was the rape of an obstinate woman, who was ready to put up with everything rather than sell her husband, and the husband in question. It was me. This woman had saved my life, and had protected the organization. It was because of me that she had been dishonored, and yet she didn't say to me, Look at all I've had to bear for you. On the contrary, she said, Forget about me. Begin your life over again, for I have been dishonored. It was from that moment on that I made my own decision to take back my wife after the war, for it must be said that I've seen peasants drying the tears of their wives after having seen them raped under their very eyes. This left me very much shaken. I must admit, moreover, that at the beginning I couldn't understand their attitude, but we increasingly came to intervene in such circumstances in order to explain matters to the civilians. I've seen civilians willingly proposing marriage to a girl who was violated by the French soldiers, and who was with child by them. All this led me to reconsider the problem of my wife. So I decided to take her back, but I didn't know at all how I'd behave when I saw her. And often, while I was looking at the photo of my daughter, I used to think that she too was dishonored like as if everything that had to do with my wife was rotten. If they'd tortured her, or knocked out all her teeth, or broken an arm, I wouldn't have minded. But that thing, how can you forget about a thing like that? And why did she have to tell me about it all? End quote. He then asked me if his sexual failing was in my opinion caused by his worries. I replied, it is not impossible. Then he sat up in bed. What would you do if all this had happened to you? I don't know. Would you take back your wife? I think I would. Ah, there you are, you see. You are not quite sure. He held his head in his hands and, after a few seconds, left the room. From that day on, he was progressively more willing to listen to political discussions, and at the same time, the headaches and the lack of appetite lessened considerably. After two weeks, he went back to his unit. Before he left, he told me, quote, When independence comes, I'll take my wife back. If it doesn't work out between us, 
I'll come and see you in Algiers. In Algiers. End quote. Case number two. Undifferentiated homicidal impulsions found in a survivor of a mass murder. S. 37 years old. A fella. Comes from a village in the country around Constantine. Never took any part in politics. From the outset of the war, his district was the scene of fierce battles between the Algerian forces and the French army. S. thus had occasion to see dead and wounded, but he continued to keep out of things. From time to time, however, in common with the people as a whole, the peasantry of his village used to come to the aid of Algerian fighting men who were passing through. But one day, early in 1958, a deadly ambush was laid not far from the village. After this, the enemy forces went into operation and besieged the village, which in fact had no soldiers in it. All the inhabitants were summoned and questioned. Nobody replied. A few hours later, a French officer arrived by helicopter and said, There's been too much talk about this village. Destroy it. The soldiers began to set fire to the houses, while the women who were trying to get a few clothes together or save some provisions were driven away by blows with rifle butts. Some peasants took advantage of the general confusion to run away. The officer gave the order to bring together the men who remained and had them brought out to near a watercourse where the killing began. Twenty-nine men were shot at point-blank range. S was wounded by two bullets, which went through his right thigh and left arm respectively. The arm injury gave rise to a fracture of the humerus. S fainted and came to to find himself in the midst of a group of ALN. He was treated by the health service and evacuated as soon as it was possible to move him. While on the way, his behavior became more and more abnormal and worried his escort continually. He demanded a gun, although he was helpless and a civilian and refused to walk in front of anybody, no matter who they were. He refused to have anyone behind him. One night, he got hold of a soldier's gun and awkwardly tried to fire on the sleeping soldiers. He was disarmed rather roughly. From then on, they tied his hands together, and it was thus that he arrived at the centre. He began by telling us that he wasn't dead yet, and that he had played a good trick on the others. Bit by bit, we managed to reconstruct his story of the assassination he had attempted. S was not anxious, he was in fact rather overexcited with violent phases of agitation, accompanied by screaming. He did not break anything much, but tired everybody out by his incessant chatter, and his whole service was permanently on the alert on account of his declared intention of killing everybody. During his stay in the hospital, he attacked about eight patients with makeshift weapons. Nurses and doctors were not spared either. We almost wondered whether we were not witnessing one of those masked forms of epilepsy, which is characterized by a wholesale aggressivity, which is nearly always present. Deep sleep treatment was then tried. From the third day on, a daily interview made it possible for us to better understand the moving force of the pathological process. The patient's intellectual confusion progressively toned down. Here are some extracts from his statements. Quote, God is with me, but he certainly isn't with those who are dead. I've had hellish good luck. In life, you've got to kill so as not to be killed, when I think that I knew nothing at all about all that business. There are Frenchmen in our midst. They disguise themselves as Arabs. They've all got to be killed. 
give me a machine gun. All these so-called Algerians are really Frenchmen, and they won't leave me alone. As soon as I want to go to sleep, they come into my room. But now I know all about them. Everyone wants to kill me, but I'll defend myself. I'll kill them all, every single one of them. I'll cut their throats one after the other, and yours with them. You all want to kill me, but you should set about it differently. I'd kill you all as soon as look at you. Big ones and little ones, women, children, dogs, birds, donkeys, everyone will be dead. And afterward, I'll be able to sleep in peace. End quote. All this was said in jerks. The patient's attitude remained hostile, suspicious, and aloof. After three weeks, his state of excitement had disappeared, but a certain reticence and a tendency to seek solitude gave us grounds for fearing a more serious evolution of his disorder. However, after a month, he asked to be let out in order to learn a trade that would be compatible with his disability. He was then entrusted to the care of the social service of the FLN. We saw him six months after, and he was going on well. Case number three. Marked anxiety psychosis of the depersonalization type after the murder of a woman while temporarily insane. DJ, a former student, a soldier in the ALN, 19 years old. His illness already dated from some months back by the time he came to the center. His appearance was characteristic. He seemed very depressed. His hands were constantly moist and his lips were dry. His chest was lifted by continual sighs. Pernicious insomnia. Two attempts at suicide since the trouble started. During the conversation, he struck hallucinatory attitudes while listening. Sometimes his glance fixed itself for a few seconds on a point in space, while his face lit up, giving the impression to observers that the patient was witnessing a play. Thoughts woolly. Certain phenomena known in psychiatry by the name of blocking. A gesture or phrase is begun and then suddenly interrupted without apparent reason. But in particular, one element aroused our particular attention. The patient talked of his blood being spilt, of his arteries, which were being emptied, and of his heart, which kept missing a beat. He implored us to stop the hemorrhage and to not let him be sucked by a vampire within the very precincts of the hospital. Sometimes he could not speak any more and asked us for a pencil. Wrote, I have lost my voice. My whole life is ebbing away. This living depersonalization gave us reason to believe that the illness had reached a serious stage of development. Several times during the course of our conversations, the patient spoke to us of a woman who, when night fell, came to persecute him. Having learnt beforehand that his mother, whom he had been very fond of, was dead, and that nothing had been able to console him for her loss, his voice had considerably sunk as he spoke of her, and he shed some tears. I directed the investigation toward the maternal image. When I asked him to describe the woman who obsessed him, I might even say persecuted him, he knew her very well, and that it was he who had killed her. It was thus a matter of finding out whether we had to deal with an unconscious guilt complex following on the death of the mother, as for it had described in Mourning and Melancholia. We asked the patient to talk to us about this woman in greater detail, since he had known her so well, and since also it was he who had killed her. Thus, we were able to reconstruct the following story. I left the town where I had been a student to join the McKee. After some months, I had news of my people. 
I learnt that my mother had been killed point-blank by a French soldier, and two of my sisters had been taken to the soldiers' quarters. Up to now, I have had no news of what happened to them. I was terribly shaken by the death of my mother. Since my father had died some years before, I was the only man in the family, and my sole ambition had always been to manage to do something to make life easier for my mother and my sisters. One day we went to an estate, belonging to settlers, where the agent, who was an active colonialist, had already killed two Algerian civilians. We came to his house at night, but he wasn't there. Only his wife was at home. When she saw us, she started to cry and implored us not to kill her. I know you've come for my husband, she said, but he isn't here. I've told him again and again not to have anything to do with politics. We decided to wait for her husband, but as far as I was concerned, when I looked at that woman, I thought of my mother. She was sitting in an armchair, and her thoughts seemed to be elsewhere. I wondered why we didn't kill her. Then, all of a sudden, she noticed I was looking at her. She flung herself upon me, screaming, Please, please don't kill me. I have children. A moment after, she was dead. I'd killed her with my knife. My commander disarmed me and ordered me to leave. I was questioned by the platoon commander a few days later. I thought I was going to be shot, but I didn't give a damn. Footnote 3. And then I started vomiting after every meal, and I slept badly. After that, this woman started coming every night and asking for my blood. But my mother's blood. Where is that? End quote. At nightfall that evening, as soon as the patient went to bed, the room was invaded by women, in spite of everything. It was a manifold repetition of the same woman. Every one of them had an open wound in her stomach. They were bloodless, pale, and terribly thin. They tormented the young patient and insisted that he should give them back their spilt blood. At this moment, the sound of running water filled the room and grew so loud that it seemed like a thundering waterfall, and the young patient saw the parquet of his room drenched with blood, his blood, while the women slowly got their color back and their wounds began to close up. The patient awoke, bathed with sweat and in deep distress, and remained in a state of nervous excitement until the dawn. The young patient was treated for several weeks, after which time the onirid symptoms, nightmares, had practically disappeared. However, a serious deficiency remained in his personality. When he started thinking of his mother, the disemboweled woman rose up before him in redoubled horror. Though it may appear unscientific, in our opinion, time alone can bring some improvement to the disrupted personality of this young man. Case 4. A European policeman in a depressed state meets, while under hospital treatment, one of his victims, an Algerian patriot who is suffering from stupor. A. 28 years old. No children. We learned that for several years both he and his wife underwent treatment, unfortunately with no success, in order to have children. He was sent to us by his superiors because he had behavior disturbances. Immediate contact seemed fairly good. The patient spoke to us spontaneously about his difficulties, satisfactory relations with his wife and parents-in-law. His trouble was that at night he heard screams which prevented him from sleeping. In fact, he told us that for the last few weeks before going to bed, he shut the shutters and stopped up all the windows. It was summer. To the complete despair of his wife, who was stifled by the heat. 
Moreover, he stuffed his ears with cotton wool in order to make the screams seem less piercing. He sometimes, even in the middle of the night, turned on the wireless or put on some music in order not to hear this nocturnal uproar. He consequently explained to us at full length the whole story that was troubling him. A few months before, he had been transferred to an anti-FLN brigade. At the beginning, he was entrusted with surveying certain shops or cafes, but after some weeks, he used to work almost exclusively at the police headquarters. Here he came to deal with interrogations, and these never occurred without some knocking about. Quote, The thing was that they would never own up to anything, he explained. Sometimes we almost wanted to tell them that if they had a bit of consideration for us, they'd speak out without forcing us to spend hours tearing information word by word out of them. But you might as well talk to the wall. To all the questions we asked, they'd only say, I don't know. Even when we asked them what their name was. If we asked them where they live, they'd say, I don't know. So of course we have to go through with it. But they scream too much. At the beginning that made me laugh, but afterward I was a bit shaken. Nowadays, as soon as I hear someone shouting, I can tell you exactly at what stage of the questioning we've got to. The chap who's had two blows of the fist and a belt of the baton behind his ear has a certain way of speaking, of shouting, and of saying he's innocent. After he's been left two hours strung up by his wrists, he has another kind of voice. After the bath, still another, and so on. But above all, it's after the electricity that it becomes really too much. You'd say that the chap was going to die any minute. Of course, there are some that don't scream. Those are the tough ones. But they think they're going to be killed right away. But we're not interested in killing them. What we want is information. When we're dealing with those tough ones, the first thing we do is to make them squeal. And sooner or later, we manage it. That's already a victory. Afterward, we go on. Mind you, we'd like to avoid that. But they don't make things easy for us. Now I've come so as I hear their screams even when I'm at home. Especially the screams of the ones who died at the police headquarters. Doctor, I'm fed up with this job. And if you manage to cure me, I'll ask to be transferred to France. If they refuse, I'll resign. End quote. Faced with such a picture, I prescribed sick leave. As the patient in question refused to go to the hospital, I treated him privately. One day, shortly before the therapeutic treatment was due to begin, I had an urgent call from my department. When A reached my house, my wife asked him to wait for me, but he preferred to go for a walk in the hospital grounds, and then came back to meet me. A few minutes later, as I was going home, I passed him on the way. He was leaning against a tree, looking overcome, trembling and drenched with sweat. In fact, having an anxiety crisis. I took him into my car and drove him to my house. Once he was lying on the sofa, he told me he had met one of my patients in the hospital who had been questioned in the police barracks. He was an Algerian patriot. And who was under treatment for disorders of a stuporous nature following on shock. I then learned that the policeman had taken an active part in inflicting torture on my patient. I administered some sedatives, which calmed A's anxiety. After he had gone... I went to the house in the hospital where the Patriot was being cared for. The personnel had noticed nothing, but the patient could not be found. Finally, we managed to discover him in a toilet where he was trying to commit suicide. He, on his side, had recognized the policeman and thought that he had come to look for him and take him back again to the barracks. 
Afterward, A came back to see me several times, and after a very definite improvement in his condition, managed to get back to France on account of his health. As for the Algerian patriot, the personnel spent a long time convincing him that the whole thing was an illusion, that policemen were not allowed inside the hospital, that he was very tired, that he was there to be looked after, etc. Case number five, a European police inspector who tortured his wife and children. R, 30 years old, came of his own accord to consult us. He was a police inspector and stated that for several weeks, things weren't working out. Married, had three children. He smoked a lot, five packets of cigarettes a day. He had lost his appetite and his sleep was frequently disturbed by nightmares. These nightmares had no special distinguishing features. What bothered him most were what he called fits of madness. In the first place, he disliked being contradicted. Quote, Can you give me an explanation for this, doctor? As soon as someone goes against me, I want to hit him. Even outside my job. I feel I want to settle the fellows who get in my way. Even for nothing at all. Look here, for example. Suppose I go to the kiosk to buy the papers. There's a lot of people. Of course you have to wait. I hold out my hand, the chap who keeps the kiosk as a pal of mine, to take my papers. Someone in the line gives me a challenging look and says, wait your turn. Well, I feel I want to beat him up and I say to myself, if I had you for a few hours, my fine fellow, you wouldn't look so clever afterwards. End quote. The patient dislikes noise. At home, he wants to hit everybody all the time. In fact, he does hit his children, even the baby of 20 months, with unaccustomed savagery. But what really frightened him was one evening when his wife had criticized him particularly for hitting his children too much. She had even said to him, My word, anyone would think you were going mad. He threw himself upon her, beat her, and tied her to a chair, saying to himself, I'll teach her once and for all that I master in this house. Fortunately, his children began roaring and crying. He then realized the full gravity of his behavior, untied his wife, and the next day decided to consult a doctor, a nerve specialist. He stated that, before, he wasn't like that. He said that he very rarely punished his children, and at all events never fought with his wife. The present phenomena had appeared since the troubles. Quote, The fact is, he said, nowadays we have to work like troopers. Last week, for example, we operated like as if we belonged to the army. Those gentlemen in the government say there's no war in Algeria, and that the arm of the law, that's to say, the police, ought to restore order. But there is a war going on in Algeria, and when they wake up to it, it'll be too late. The thing that kills me most is the torture. You don't know what that is, do you? Sometimes I torture people for ten hours at a stretch. What happens to you when you are torturing? You may not realize, but it's very tiring. It's true we take it in turns. But the question is to know when to let the next chap have a go. Each one thinks he's going to get the information at any minute, and takes good care not to let the bird go to the next chap after he's softened him up nicely, when, of course, the next chap would get the honor and glory of it. So sometimes we let them go, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we even offer the chap money. Money out of our own pockets to try to get him to talk. Our problem is as follows. Are you able to make this fellow talk? It's a question of personal success. You see, you're competing with the others. In the end, your fists are ruined. 
so you call in the Senegalese. But either they hit too hard and destroy the creature, or else they don't hit hard enough and it's no good. In fact, you have to be intelligent to make a success of that sort of work. You have to know when to lay it on and when to lay it off. You have to have a flair for it. When the chap is softened up, it's not worth your while going on hitting him. That's why you have to do the work yourself. You can judge better how you're getting on. I'm against the ones that have the chap dealt with by others and simply come to see every hour or so what state he's in. After all, what you mustn't do is to give the chap the impression that he won't get away alive from you, because then he wonders what's the use of talking, if that won't save his life. And in that case, you'll have no chance at all of getting anything out of him. He must go on hoping. Hope's the thing that'll make him talk. But the thing that worries me most is this affair with my wife. It's certain there's something wrong with me. You've got to cure me, doctor. End quote. His superiors refused to give him sick leave, and since, moreover, the patient did not wish to have a psychiatrist's certificate, we tried to give him treatment while working full-time. The weakness of such a procedure may easily be imagined. This man knew perfectly well that his disorders were directly caused by the kind of activity that went on inside the rooms where interrogations were carried out, even though he tried to throw the responsibility totally upon present troubles. As he could not see his way to stopping torturing people, that made nonsense to him, for in that case he would have to resign, he asked me, without beating about the bush, to help him go on torturing Algerian patriots without any prickings of conscience, without any behaviour problems, and with complete equanimity. Footnote 4 And that's going to do it for this week. We will be continuing with more of these cases in this chapter next week. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.